This is the Faculty on Tap podcast, where our goal is to feature the amazing faculty here at USF St. Petersburg and highlight the things they're doing in research, teaching and learning, and other fun things going on in their world. And we hope in the process to inform, inspire, and maybe even entertain just a little bit. And this is our third episode. My name is Ricky Zager, and I am an instructional designer here at USFSP, and I'm one of the three hosts of the show. Hi, my name is Allison Simulevich. I'm the scholarly communications librarian here at University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Excellent. And uh, I'm Tim Henkel, the director for our Center for Innovative Teaching and Learning. And uh, it's great to be back with everybody here today. And really want to welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Don Cecil, who's a professor of criminology here at USF St. Pete in the Department of Society, Culture and Language. So, Don, welcome to Faculty on Tap. Thank you. Well, we are really excited to have you, Don, and and for, for a lot of different reasons. But one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast is go around to local establishments and have some local drinks and eat food and, and sort of get together. But obviously we're going through a pandemic right now, so that's not something that we can do. But so at the beginning of the show, we are just going around and whether you're drinking water or tequila or beer or whatever it is, we're just kind of highlighting that. So I'll start off. I've got a coffee blonde ale from Three Daughters, and this is the perfect combination if you have a six-month-old <laughs> at right. home and you're in a lockdown very nice very nice some beer um well i i didn't have the chance to go out and grab anything local so i'm drinking a uh a new belgian fat tire but i am having it out of my cigar city mug so yeah. keeping it local there and uh, i have my nice. uh back to still with three daughters and floating docks still with the light ipa so keeping it uh, nice and easy there and uh Don, what do you have in enjoying this afternoon? So this afternoon, I am enjoying a gin and tonic. I wish it was Excellent. local gin, but it's not. But nice. <laughs> sounds great. Actually, do do we have a local gin scene? I haven't. Uh... Yes, Saint Love it. Think Saint is our Saint Pete Distillery, and they have yeah, they have a gin. I didn't know they made gin. Saint okay. Pete Distillery. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Very cool. Well, that's awesome. So now that we got that out of the way and we're going to enjoy these while we while we talk as well. Um, but one of the things that we've been doing, Don, is starting off with some uh, some rapid fire questions. And uh, these are these are simple questions. However, they can be personal. We've had some debate during some of these, but we'll get started if you are ready for this with a first question, which is, are you a cat or a dog person? Dog all the way. In yes. fact, my boxer is sleeping right behind me. <laughs> we have a boxer. Another boxer. Yes, yep. yes, yeah. Excellent. Love the boxers. I am outnumbered. Uh, I am the, the sole cat person here. So. <laughs> we'll find another faculty who likes cats someday. Oh, I thought you were going to say we'll find another host who likes dogs. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That no, went no, a we different were, direction. No. Yeah, we're trying like, to oh, con my. Right. Construct, not destruct, right? <laughs> there we go. All right, Don, our next question. Wine or beer or maybe liquor, I guess? It really depends on my mood. But lately, it has been wine and gin. Not together. Separate. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a new concoction. Yeah. Okay, that's, uh, that sounds good. I like it, depending on the mood. That definitely changes. All right, and here's a big one, and especially given your subject matter and talking about criminology, but... It doesn't have to be about criminology, but what are you watching right now on Netflix? What am I watching on Netflix? I am watching um, any foreign crime drama I can find. It tends to be Ooh. Nordic noirs. I actually just watched one called 
quicksand. I guess it wasn't really a noir, but it was a Swedish one. Interesting. Cool. All right. And that's just on our Netflix that we can get? Yep. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. And then finally, are you listening to any podcasts or maybe books that you're reading right now? And again, whether it's for personal or whether it's for, you know, criminology in your work, um, anything that's interesting that we could be pointed towards? Um, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is Ear Hustle. So it is criminology. I don't know Ooh. if you know Ear Hustle. It's produced yeah. out of San Quentin um, by those who are incarcerated there. So you learn a lot about incarceration. Um from their perspective. And then for fun, I was just listening to one, I think it was called Home Cooking um, with Samin um, Notrot, I think is her last name, who did Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And yes. it was just about cooking during quarantine. And so it was very interesting. That very sounds great. Cool. I had not heard of those, so I yeah. will definitely check those out. So Don, uh, you have a new book that just came out. Um, Fear, Justice, and Modern True Crime. Uh, so this is a really interesting topic, and I'm, I'm curious about what, what specifically got your attention for this area? So I have been writing about crime in the media and teaching about it since about 2005, maybe a little bit before that. I'm mostly focusing on um, prisons in the media. Um, and then I wrote a book about that. And then I wondered, what am I going to do next? I had no idea. <laughs> and then I just happened to hear Serial when it came out. I'm like everybody else, influenced by Serial, I guess. Um, and I was very intrigued, mostly about what it meant for, um, or how I could use it in a class. Because um, it took the standard murder story, but it brought up the question of whether or not the person who was convicted of the crime actually did the crime or was even treated fairly. So maybe they did it, but the, uh, the trial process wasn't correct on the investigation. And uh, so I started listening to it. And then after that, more and more true crime podcasts started coming out. So I just did a study for a, um, a conference where I just looked at the growth of true crime podcasts after Serial and who was producing them um what were their topics you know because you've got those that drink and talk about murder and there's people who laugh at murder and then there's the ones that question justice and there were all these variety of true crime podcasts so i was just kind of interested in creating a typology of what was out there and from that um i just started to think about what this growth in true crime meant um and and what it what it does for justice and why people listen to it or watch it. Cause shortly after that was making a murder and all my students were always talking to me about making a murder. So <laughs> between those two things, I, I came up with the idea to explore it further. That's really yeah, interesting. Making murderer was, I mean, that was definitely, I was way into that. So I get it. And I, <laughs> I understand why your students would have been too. Yeah, and I mean, the, the true crime podcast, I mean, they really have blown up, you know, as you've seen after Serial. I mean, uh, my wife is a big fan of the genre. I have friends who are big fans of the genre. And it actually captured, because I was reading, you know, your first chapter at the very end, you have these interesting statistics, right? You share, you know, in this sort of pop culture genre that's come up, there are conventions like CrimeCon, mm -hmm. and you share that 82% of those attending were female, 
average age was 40, the average household income 175,000, and all these uh, girls weekends, you know, sort of centered around it. And I just was sort of fascinated by that and wondering what you think it is about this genre that seems to speak to this specific demographic. Well, I have to say, CrimeCon was a very strange experience to okay. start out your question. <laughs> I was able to go um, to the CrimeCon that was um, in, uh, I've already forgotten where, Nashville. <laughs> and um, I, it, it, was, it was a very surreal experience because you had people who were there because they love serial killers. And probably no other reason. Like they wore serial killer shirts and dresses and just all this up they're enamored by them in some way or fascinated and then you had all these people who were there because they want to seek justice they have a missing loved one or they want to help someone find missing loved ones they want to learn about the criminal justice system so it was really bizarre and it was bizarre to look around and see people doing their <laughs> bachelorette parties and girls weekends and you could buy a t-shirt that said my partner in crime con and it would point you know, to the t-shirts. The and it was just such a bizarre experience coming from a criminological perspective. Um, and so there's a lot of um, a discussion about what draws women to true crime, because it's not just crime con, they're the primary true crime audience, regardless of the um, form that it comes in. And so there's some people who talk about the fact that they do it just because they want to learn how to protect themselves, um, that they want to understand why people commit these crimes. And then there's other people who think, well, people like women in general like this because some women like dark stories. They, they like to hear about murder and things like that. So there's a variety of reasons. And I, I still don't understand why it's primarily women but it, it is, or why you go there for a bachelorette party, but <laughs> each his own, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It is, you know, when, when I think about, yeah, that reach, but then also too, just how this growth and the interest in, in true crime stories, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of just different diverse views and what their angles that they're coming at that through, but, you know, your book, you know, titled, you know, Fear and Justice. So how has this been impacting, you think, coming into that criminal justice aspect? Or have you seen any impacts? And I don't want to give away the whole book for you either. Go out and buy it. <laughs> so I think there's a couple things going on. One is it does, it is presenting people with stories that question justice. Traditional true crime showed you or would tell you about a murder. They caught the person who did it. The person was either executed or incarcerated, and that's the end. Well, not all stories end that way. You don't always get the bad guy, or sometimes you get the wrong guy. Um, so it, it brings up those kind of questions. Um, also, I mean, to relate it kind of to current events, you know, one that I listened to early on was called 74 Seconds, and it was following the trial in the murder of Philandro Castile who was shot in Minneapolis by a police officer. So it was dissecting the, the trial itself and the experts and what was going on so people could learn about the justice system that way. Mm. Um, but it also has the potential to impede on justice, depending who is doing the investigation, what kind of information is being put out there. Um, so there are some instances in which 
people are being falsely accused because they're brought up as suspects in the um, in the true crime story, whether it's the podcast or the docu-series or even Facebook. True crime fans are very active on social media um, in their Facebook groups. So, um, you know, there, I talk a little bit about that in my book. Like, what's this line people are going to walk between impeding justice and helping justice if that's how they want to use the podcast or the the series. Yeah, I think it's even interesting thinking about true crime, right? Because you sort of were getting at it, you know, what people see as truth it comes into play here and within our criminal justice system as well. And whether they're advocates for or they're trying to, you know, one side or the other and, and how they use this medium to actually go about um, sort of advocating for their particular cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would say, you know, there's the true crime that is completely voyeuristic, you know, people just are going to learn those stories. And I do have a story in my book about an experience I had with that. But then you have those who are trying to use the medium to, you know, do something good to help with justice. So you can kind of divide it in those two respects. A little bit more is voyeuristic than justice seeking, but so if we're thinking about, you know, true crimes and popular culture and everything, and especially, you know, as we entered into the p- pandemic, there really wasn't anything more pop culture and true crimes than, of course, Tiger King, right? And this phenomenon that sort of just burst out there. So I was wondering if you had a chance to uh, dig into any of that phenomenon or watch it happen and unravel and what maybe some of your thoughts were as, as you observed that true crime story coming to public attention. So my first thought was, thank goodness it wasn't out when I was researching my book, because I didn't have to write about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I have been thinking about it a lot. I was not going to watch it. And my boyfriend, who doesn't watch anything like that, we watch like cooking and travel shows, wanted to watch it, of all things. And I said to him in the first episode, this is the most disturbing true crime I think I've watched so far. Wow. You know, it's just disturbing in a different way, I guess. Um, But I found it, I haven't paid attention and thinking about it just because it's fascinating that people became so obsessed with it during this pandemic and not just watching it, all the memes on Facebook. um, It's just, it's crazy what, what people are doing. So I, I think it's escapism, right? It's something so weird and so different from what we're dealing with, it provides this sense of, of escapism for people. You Well, you mentioned yeah, I mean, like the interactive part of, you know, social media and true crime. And I like, I think even the Tampa Bay Times put together an archive of their clippings from cases or from articles dealing with um, Carol Baskin. Yeah, I think about that. Um, But yeah, I mean, is that the kind of like interactiveness that you're thinking of when when you talk about that? Well, people had all sorts of crazy memes on Facebook, too. um, And I can't think of an example right now. Or I saw one company, I think it was actually out of of all places, Medicine Hat, Alberta. Um, They have a distillery called Grit City. And for Mother's Day, they put together some care package you could or basket you could buy and it had, had something to do with carol baskin i don't remember exactly but you know this was just the something carol baskin's basket basically yes <laughs> i don't remember what was in it that made it the carol baskin <laughs> basket but maybe it was just that <laughs> but that's you know funny. that's 
they they just kind of made it very comical or blamed her for everything, you know, that was going on in the world. So, yeah, that speaks to what you said before, because I know I have personally haven't seen it yet. I, I will watch it at some point, but I haven't watched it yet. But I've noticed that people that I'm acquainted with, whether they're 20 years old or whether they're 60 years old, all seem to be on board with what's happening. Like they know about it. They watched it. They, most of them hate Carol. They all say she did it. She did this. So I know you spoke about that earlier. It is a fascinating part. And I know when I watched Making a Murderer, I was like, well, it's got to be that guy. He was here. Well, he got the call. And I wonder, you know, how does that mess with um, the entertainment aspect of it messes with the true crime? I think we kind of talked about a little bit, but I know that with Tiger King as well, like there's this vitriol for this person and really nobody knows anything other than what they've been shown by Netflix. Well, you know, both I think the making a murderer and Tiger King are very similar in many ways in the way that they're edited to manipulate you into believing one truth. Um, especially first season of making a murderer, but even, um, you know, Tiger King, everybody being convinced when there's really no evidence that I saw that, she did anything, um, but everybody's pretty sure. But I think it's about the editing, the way the story is told, um, and, and convincing people of that narrative. Mm. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah. But <laughs> no, you did. That's perfect. No, that's perfect. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to me how you you get these movements, you know, for or against certain people being them, and you know, and I think when you're when you're talking about teaching young people to you know figure out true crime and what are what are the facts of it and what is the emotion of it and I, I mean I think that could be a good way to contrast it and 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 teach them so it's, it's I guess it's a good thing for your area of expertise that some of these are so out there and so prevalent because it gives you a lot that you can currently you know relate to students right and I mean true crime is basically crime fact right that's dressed up in in fiction in a way um, and you'll see, I write about this in my book, it is sort of a spectrum, though. And the ones that tend to be more dry, more straightforward, more fact-driven are not as popular as these that are more like novels and, you know, crime dramas and things like that. So the right. entertainment is what really is drawing a lot of people into the most popular ones. Right. Yeah. So do you have any insight, you know, as I think about this, as are people drawn to true crime stories that basically reinforce their worldview or are these actually useful at sort of creating a shift in how we perceive a particular situation? Now, I don't know for a fact, but um, I think most people are drawn to what um, reinforces their worldview, which is yeah. probably why the ones that are challenging justice, um, which some people might not call true crime, I classify them as true crime, because they're right next to, or marketed right next to the others, um, mm. but they're just not as popular. People are not drawn to them as much when they're challenging them um, on issues. Mm. Like a good example is the second season of the podcast, In the Dark, that investigates um, the case of Curtis Flowers, who was tried six times, an African-American man, tried six times for a quadruple murder by the same white prosecutor. And it, he keeps getting convicted, 
it keeps getting overturned for prosecutorial misconduct and the same prosecutor keeps going back and it's really interesting and it's really informative but people don't sign petitions like they did after making a murderer to try to exonerate Curtis mm. Flowers like they did with Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey so <laughs> right right yeah interesting do you think that yeah. it's impacting, I guess, people's views of the criminal justice system? In that way? Yes. Yeah, I think it has the potential. I didn't survey anyone on that or anything. Um, I, when I talked to people, it was more about why they made the podcast or the series, well, mostly podcast, um, or why they like it. Um, but I do think that there is stuff out there that is allowing them to re change their view of what's going on. And that's because one of them is the... Um, wrongful conviction stories are becoming so popular or stories about false confessions. So it, it allows people to see a different side of the criminal justice system. So Don, you mentioned, you know, take this work that you've done with the podcast and true crimes and serial, you know, and trying to bring that into the classroom. I know that you work very hard to bring that media and helping students get to see and experience and how that impacts their views and understanding of criminal justice. In fact, one of the, your recent, I guess, endeavors into that was a uh, special topics class you put together about women in prison and Orange is the New Black, right? And, and relating those two topics. And I was just wondering if you might share a little bit about what drew you to uh, that comparison and how you put that class together. Okay, um, well, I had, finished writing, I think I had finished writing my book um, on prisons in the pop culture. And of course, right, not of course, but at that time, Orange is the New Black just started to get very popular on Netflix, years before I had read the memoir um, by Piper Kerman. And actually, I was at a conference, the American Society of Criminology, and Piper Kerman was speaking about the power of storytelling, about how she goes into prisons and teaches people how to write so that they can tell their stories because people are not changed by statistics generally, or their interest is at least not piqued by statistics. It takes a personal story. So as she was talking, I wrote down in a notebook, develop a class using Orange is the New Black. <laughs> so I was inspired by the author herself, whose story is the basis for the Netflix series. And so I decided, and I always joke, I trick students into learning more about women in prison than they ever thought they would learn in their lives because they see orange is the new black in the title and they think, yay, we're watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and then they learn all the truth about women in prison. And so what I decided to do was I first have them read the memoir. And I always ask at the beginning of the semester, have you ever seen the Netflix series? And I get a mix of people, you know, not everybody has. And so they read the memoir first, which actually their reaction papers are due today um, <laughs> to see how they reacted to that, um, not, or to that memoir. Um, and as I'm doing that, I'm building up the background about why do women go to prison and, and all of those types of things, um, the history of, of women's prisons and all of that. And then the second half of the session, because it was developed as a six-week summer session, we watched season one of the show. Um, and through it, we tackle issues like what it's like to adjust to prison life. Um, what is programming like? We look at mothers who are incarcerated. We look at pregnancy behind bars, um, health care, treatment of transgender inmates, 
uh, and reentry after prison using the stories that are presented in Orange is the New Black. So what they'll do is watch a specific episode or two that touches on that. I, they'll have other readings or even, you know, part of a lecture. And then based on that, they can compare what is Orange is the New Black showing them about this? And then what is the reality behind prison mm, or like, what right. is the reality of women in prison? So it mm. allows them to not only learn about women in prison, but also question the media that they're watching and its accuracy. Not that right. they expect it to be 100% accurate, but, you know, the, a lot of people do seem to think it's the absolute truth about what goes on there. Right. So. Right. right. Yeah. And so since that, uh, you've been doing that classic, wow. Have you seen like a shift as far as how students our students, have they always been as accepting or as questioning of their media portrayal? Or has that, I'm just always been wondering about, yeah, students and their perceptions. I don't think so, because I also teach a class once a year called Crime Media and Pop Culture. And with that, we really, we break down crime dramas and news, and then they can look at other things as well. And you see it in there, especially that they didn't question, like watching crime dramas their whole lives how it presents crime and victimization and justice. And so you do begin to see them start to think about it. And often, especially in that other class, they'll say, I ruined their favorite show for them. <laughs> they had to <laughs> right, think right. about what's right and you know what's accurate, what's not accurate, <laughs> which is kind of funny. I know the feeling because that's how I feel when I watch almost anything related to crime. Um, but for me, in terms of, Going back to Orange is the New Black, I get the best comments at the end of the semester from that class about how much people learn. And again, I think it goes back to the personal stories. They connect to the story in the memoir and then, of course, the stories from the series. So mm -hmm. I really love teaching that class. Right. Yeah, I'm sort of drawn to, uh, you know, you were inspired by the author there and how she was able to tell her story and how important that is in telling your story. And you, I guess that the Ear Hustle podcast you mentioned too, that's all about the incarcerated being able to tell their own story. And I was wondering if your students ever, or is that something you also try to foster in your students as far as their ability to, and how important it is that you tell your story or how you tell your story impacts how you're understood? I'm not sure I try to instill that, but I think when I use those examples, I always talk about it in that way. So I would hope that some of them take it in that way, that right. either telling their own stories or having other people tell their stories um, or listen, just listening to people when they tell their stories is important. Right. Yeah. Well, I picked it up from this short conversation from you, so I'm sure your students <laughs> do <laughs> over those semesters. Who knows? <laughs> I, we try. I, I kind of want to jump. I want to yeah. jump in for a second because I have a uh, maybe shockingly horrible thing to admit here. I did not know that was based off a memoir. I had no Ooh. idea. Like I just thought it was. I didn't even know it was based on any reality. I assumed it was because it feels like it's realistic in a lot of ways. But I didn't know that it was based off anything. So I'm glad to have learned that. That's very interesting. Yes, but as always, you know, the memoir is much better than the series. <laughs> I know, I'm interested in reading for. it, actually. Uh, but you're yeah. not the only one. Most of my students have no idea. And then they're like, I have to read what? And then they see that it actually was based off a woman's experience in prison. And the cool thing about her is, you know, she is a privileged individual. She right. was white, Ivy League educated. She had the skills to write. When she got out of prison, she had a job. 
but she's using that to be a prison activist. So taking what she learned in prison and trying to make changes. That's very yeah. cool. And you've done some work looking at how that change in perception, right? Because how there's some at, some pro work that's showing how prison reforms um, are actually impacting the criminal justice system, as opposed to only focused on in the media about all the bad stories, right? Because we're sort of been inundated a lot of press. And I know growing up, the stories are always the negative, but how different reform efforts um, may actually have positive impacts there too. Yes, I looked at um, New York Times and how they were presenting prison stories because prison stories were always bad. And so I found the discussion of reform and it was reflecting the discussions, at least at the time, that were happening about prison reform. Mm, right, yeah. So I know, uh, you know, you teach a class that's on inequalities and crime and, you know, it's sort of, I've been just reflecting as we're leading to this conversation, you know, today and how we're just currently in the midst of a national protest demonstration confronting this systemic racism that's just persisted for such a long period of time. And I was just wondering if you've, I know you've had some thoughts about how you bring the current times into the classroom and what your goals are with students to engage in these conversations to understand, you know, what they're seeing and what the system is and activism in all those aspects. Yeah, so inequalities in crime, I think this was the third time I taught it this past fall, third or fourth. And each time it's slightly different because I try to bring in what's going on at that moment. Mm. Um, although there's some issues that are repeated every single semester, as, as we see right now. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I start out by addressing social class and then we will either go into gender or race and then I've expanded it into um, other areas as well. Um, and I just, you know, I first, I try to make everybody comfortable having the conversations, which is challenging. Um, there's many things that can influence whether people are comfortable having those conversations, because in most of our criminology classes, we talk about them, but we don't dive into it. Like we'll talk about race and incarceration, but we really don't get into it. Right. Or I'm sure... Dr. Wagers, who teaches law enforcement, gets into race and policing. But, you know, this allows us to really look at it at um, across the board um, and, and try to have some conversations about it. I don't remember what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really just, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, that that it's such a challenging thing, right, to, to bring up and get our students and even ourselves to have these conversations, to think about these systems that have really created barriers for entire lives for some of our students, for other students have not had any um, such shared experiences and to try and get them to sort of understand and start thinking about, yeah, those perceptions and, and different aspects there. And it's just, I think, interesting and, and challenging to, to bring that in the classroom. And then as I think about that with the framework of today. Um, um, and you know, again, I try to use stories when I can. So right. when I deal with what ends up always being the most difficult topic, which is race and justice, um, doesn't matter what semester it is, it's always the most difficult topic. I use the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. So if All anyone's right. listening to this, everybody should read it. I think you can watch the movie for free right now, yes. but there's a lot yes. more in the book. 
Um, so I highly recommend it. Um, I say it's just, it's a book every criminology student should read, but really at this point, everybody should read. Um, so um, I try to use those stories, of course, to get the conversation going. Um, but, you know, I, it, it was just a, I don't even know how to put this, but it was strange this semester. I was telling um, Tim in an email, I got a lot of pushback this semester, not from Just Mercy, but from other readings that had to deal with Black Lives Matters and things like that. Um, and I found it very interesting that now at the end of the semester, we find out, you know, everything that was going on at the time we were having these discussions. Um, and it wasn't a very diverse classroom, so I, I don't know if that had something to do with it. You know, so we didn't have a lot of different representation in the discussion. Um, but it, it, you know, my goal is always just so that they can see the perspective of whether it's poor people going through the system or women or um, Native Americans, we do Native Hawaiians, we do all these things they don't think about or African-Americans in our society. So I wanted to see it from that perspective and at least consider it. Um, and in that class and other classes, I always try to get them to think about reform. So their final projects are always centered around what can we do different? And so for this particular class, they had to pick topics related to inequality and crime and, and think about reform. So. Those weren't the best projects this semester, only because we were in the middle of the remote teaching. <laughs> and, you know, but they, yeah, that presented they a whole other set of things, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. yeah. Switching from mid-semester, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, has, has created a whole new a new world there yeah, as and well. We talk about them because usually those projects are also a springboard of discussion, and we didn't get to do that as much. So right, right, right. It's it is interesting that you get pushed back more recently. I wonder, you know, from a societal aspect of, of how much both sides are pressing more and more that different talk, you know, where one side feels like, you know, as a, as a white male, I know that I've had people in my life, other white males that feel like they're being unnecessarily targeted now, like they're bad just because they're white male. And you know what I mean? So I wonder if, if those things are causing that to be more separated and, I guess the one thing that's interesting, not the one thing, but one of the things that's interesting to me um, is how you operate with those discussions. Because I find myself having difficulty just talking to a friend sometimes about these issues. Do you have any tips or advice maybe at all for people when they're discussing these things and how you can do it in a constructive way? Or is it just something that you just have to work through slowly? You have to work through slowly. I started this semester... Um, a little differently because I had taken the edX class. What was it on Tim called uh, diverse classrooms? Yeah, can't remember what it was. Yep. So I, I had come to it a little bit differently. I had also read a book called called So You Want to Talk About Race, and that mm. gave me some ideas that, of course, I'm blanking on right now. <laughs> but one of the things I started the semester was let's make up the rules for discussion. So I had them create the rules for discussion, not me, them. Um, and there were topics that weren't related to race, they were related to other issues where, you know, students were, had very polarizing ideas, yet they did a pretty good job of talking it out. There's times when I'm up there and my heart is beating fast and I'm like, how am I going to deal with this? And the students seem to talk it out. And there was even a, a 
a male and a female student who had very different views about the topic we were talking about, and they continued to talk about it after class. Right. And and in a in a respectful way, not you know argue about it, but they talked about it because they both wanted to understand the other person's position. So I'm not sure I did anything in that other than the climate I tried to create. Well, that, but that sounds like the the big issue, right? Like you have them say, "What are the boundaries?" You know, what what is okay for us to say and what's not okay, and then within that context, I mean, I think that's a, a that's a good lesson for all of us. Right. I think you know. Hey, before we talk about this, let's agree we're not going to say that you know this, this, or this, and mm-hmm. let's try to understand each other's perspectives rather than force our perspective. You know that type of thing. No, I think that's I think that's a really good advice um, for all of us, actually. Yeah, and you also mentioned too. Uh, this was the third time, and I always say it takes at least three times teaching a course. I mean, the first time you just sur- is all about survival. <laughs> you get through it. You know, the second time you're going to revise some things, and it takes at least three or four times before you start figuring out, okay, how do I do this thing I want to do? And so, you know, just that experience. And I think that's also one of the aspects of teaching we don't always talk about. You know, we just think it's going to be great the first time, and no, it's it's a process, right? Figuring out how a course can work to get to the goals you're trying to get to. And the only, you have to actually do it and go through it. And of course, each time is different because you get different students. And so it's always an interesting experience how that evolves. Yes, and I found even the classroom that I was in this semester um, mm-hmm. affected the way the class went because oh, I was yeah. moved into um, the College of Business building. I don't know why I'm blanking on everything today, right. <laughs> but it was a tiered room and I have right. all this group discussion and interaction and it blocked it in some ways. Uh, um, right. yes. And so, you know, some of the what should have been small group discussion sometimes was forced to be class discussion. And so, like, I struggled with that. And then, of course, it went online midway <laughs> through the semester. <laughs> right. So I'm going to need another time before it <laughs> settles into <laughs> to a good class or what yeah. I would be with. But <laughs> right, yeah. But it does bring up, you know, learning environment really is a big thing, you know. And so, and it drives the space that we're in and, and what the way we can have conversations and, and work with one another. And that definitely has a big impact on on those outcomes. And so it's something, again, that we don't always talk about or think about. We get a room assigned and that's done by somebody else and the person who's teaching it and where the implications for the goals of the course, what best serves. Um, yeah. And the space there and creating that. I'm curious, um, has, as the years have gone on while you're teaching at USF St. Pete, um, has student use of social media, I guess, influenced kind of um, how you maybe changed your courses over the years or, or even their perspectives have their perspectives changed as you see in social media become more of a you know more of a main thing um I think so and you know I tried using social media in a class once in an inequality and crime class my pet oh. we had a Facebook group and I wanted people to post stories and and I'm not sure that went as well as I would have liked. And not everybody wanted to be on Facebook. And so right. I had, you know, I had to to kind of deal with that. Um, what I do notice is their news and or their information tends to come from social media. <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't even know Snapchat had news. And then they're showing me, I sound old now. Um, <laughs> and then they're showing me that in class and they want to analyze that as their news source for in crime media and pop culture. And I'm like, 
I'm not really sure I understand how you're going to do that, <laughs> you know, so part of it is I need to catch up. But yeah, I, I feel like it, it is slightly different their use. I don't even really know what they're using now. Again, sounding old, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They may be talking and ticking or something. I think that's what they <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, Tim, Tim knows all about the ticking and the talking. Yes, he's, he's really, he's on point. He's very, very current. This very, time. I should keep engaged. I stay young with the with the use innovative teaching and learning that's right <laughs> we really appreciate you being on the show with us and we did want to give you one opportunity as well to you know plug the book how do i get it if i if i'm interested in getting your book how do i how do i obtain it can i get it on amazon what do i do okay so the book is called fear justice and modern true crime and it's published by lynn reiner publishers you can get it on amazon but i will give you a tip that right now you probably want to go to the publisher because whereas it, it's little more than half the price on the publishers versus what it is on Amazon right now. So I don't know. Hopefully, I just want books good, sold. So <laughs> That's a good tip. That is a good tip. Half price is a good tip for sure. Exactly. A <laughs> little bit under half price. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So that's what I would suggest um, for right now while they have that sale going on. And, and I just got my copy last week. So it is ready. It's out there. Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you yeah. for that. Definitely. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Cheers. the week before yeah, that, sure. I found out I was promoted to full professor. So it's been a good week. Right. <laughs> Celebration. Yes. This yes. is great. Yes. And to top it off, the best moment, you're on our podcast. Exactly. I mean, come on. Yes. yes. The pinnacle. The pinnacle exactly. is the being on the yeah, podcast. That, that's the ordering. I yeah. agree. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Well, once again, uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Tim. I'll just uh, say, you know, at the end of a podcast, I think uh, a cheers is in order. So exactly. always great talking with you guys, Ricky, Allison, Don. Have a great week. Cheers. cheers. Thank cheers. you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh,